Welcome to the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability Autism Conversations in the Schools podcast. This series, as well as our online trainings, have been developed in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices. We hope that you enjoy these podcasts, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district, please contact the UNMCDD at 505 272 1852. Uh, thank you for joining us on this second part of the multi layered systems of support podcast that we are doing with Heather Deluzio. Um, I hope that you listen to the first part of uh, the podcast, which really laid the foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, also on that, the first uh, podcast, you will have the welcome and uh, the background of what we are doing with these podcasts that are sponsored by uh, the New Mexico Public Education Department. And um, so just a, a brief review, the um, response to intervention, which used to be our way of uh, supporting children into special education, has recently, uh, or a few years uh, back, has been changed to multi-layer systems of support, which looks at how we support all students. And so we are talking today with Heather Deluzio. We're going to talk now, we talked about layers one and two. And so we have talked about the supports that all students should receive in their classrooms and positive behavior supports. And we have talked some about some layer two uh, interventions, which include uh, some, some work with uh, progress monitoring and health and wellness. The next part, uh, we're going to focus on layer three. Uh, and as I say, if you've not yet listened to the other podcasts, I encourage you to do that, as well as listening to this podcast. Uh, layer three supports are for those students who need the most intensive support, as well as the core supports from level one. And so when we think about layer three, we're thinking about, uh, in addition to all the supports from layers one and layers two, we're thinking about individualized and intensive intervention. Uh, and again, adding different layers of progress monitoring and uh, adding, again, different layers of non-punitive systems of support. So Heather, much of your career has been focused on uh, the students needing supports at layer three. And so could you briefly uh, talk about what that looks like and how layer three differs from and includes layers one and two supports? So students who require those layer three supports really require instruction that is specifically designed to meet their um, specific needs. So looking at where are the gaps in their skills? Where are they missing um, certain skills that would allow them to access broader, uh, broader scopes of their education um, and things like that? And also within layer three, the students that I've worked with, right, it's the time and intensity of those supports that is different from layer one or layer two. With layer one, we're providing those supports across the day to all students. At layer two, we're focusing in um, at a smaller group of students where it's more 
individualized, more providing a little bit more intensity, a little more frequency to that instruction. And at layer three, we're really um, working with students who need significant um, time and intensity of instruction to help remediate or gain, help them gain those skills that they're missing. Um, and within that, we're providing a lot more opportunities for practice, more opportunities for reinforcement, for feedback. So we're providing those more intensive, frequent opportunities for learning specific to those skills we've identified that they are um, missing or they are um, struggling to acquire. Yes, that that's that's layer three in a really nice nutshell, and, and I really uh, appreciate that. Um, so when we talked about this a little bit in our layer one and layer two podcast is, I think some people have uh, a little bit of a misperception uh, that both layer two and layer three supports are for students who are in special education or who have been identified uh, with a disability, um, So which, which is not necessarily true. Uh, and so would you talk a little bit about how um, those supports can be provided in a, in a variety of environments and then also uh, in a, in a uh, segregated uh, special education environment as well? Layer three, like you said, layer three supports are not isolated to students who receive special education services. Um, we can be providing those supports and services across learning um, environments. So in the general ed environment, uh, in the cafeteria, in the hallways, in the courtyard, uh, wherever those opportunities for learning take place. But what we are saying is that we need to make sure that those interventions are provided more frequently, um, that they are more individualized to the um, specific needs of the student as it's impacting their ability to be successful at school and, and, and benefit from their education. You, you got it. I think we got what how layer three differs and includes both layers one and two. And it sort of will lead into the next question that we have talked about so many times uh, is that one of the um, things that the school personnel are still learning is that uh, layer three is very different. And the supports are, while they include layer one supports, they are indeed different supports. And I think that you and I have talked a little bit before about the frustration of uh, trying to work with teachers to encourage them to provide those actual uh, intensive uh, supports for students who require those layer three supports rather than just sort of uh, falling back on a um, more structured or um, focused uh, layer one support. And, you know, an example that you and I have talked about is the idea of schedules. So schedules are indeed a layer one support, but often we will see in um, um, behavior plans uh, that are, really should be more intensive supports, we will see a fallback to, um, you know, provide opportunities for uh, non-contingent reinforcement, for example or um, provide opportunities to you know, uh, access a schedule, uh, which again are can be level three supports, but really they're level one supports. So if you could differentiate a little bit before between what we typically think of as level uh, three supports and rather than just sort of a watered down or maybe a more intensive version of level one supports. 
right? So when we think about level three supports and you take, schedules are a great example, right? That's that's something that is pretty universal as a lay, a, a layer one, a, a level one support for students. We should have clear, clear schedules. Students should understand what's happening throughout their day and how we present those to our students might, might vary across classrooms, but we're providing a general access to, here's what the day is going to entail, here's what we're going to do. Um, and as we refine that, like you said, sometimes it's taking that layer one, that layer level one intervention of, I have a schedule, I have a routine, um, and how do we individualize it and then make it more specific to that individual student's needs? Um, so if we're thinking about schedules from a, a layer three perspective, I might look specifically at um, how am I individualizing that schedule to be accessible to that student as well, right? Maybe providing the classroom schedule is not sufficient for them to access that knowledge and to understand the purpose of that support. Also, I might need to break it down more. I might need to have a more refined schedule for that student. Maybe it's not as simple as putting up reading. I need to have a schedule that outlines the specific activities that will take place within the context of reading, right? A reading lesson might incorporate whole group instruction, small group instruction, independent work. And even within that, I might have to break that down even more for a student so they can specifically see what the components within those different aspects of a reading lesson, um, what, what those might look like for them. And so it's really taking in the skill deficit, right? What's what's missing? Maybe that student is missing the some skills around sequencing and organizing events and space. So they may need some really explicit instruction and understanding. First we do this, then we do this, then we can get to this other thing that you would like to do and have to do some instruction and teaching around how to use the schedule, what it means, what those different, maybe if we're providing visual supports along with that schedules, making sure that we understand that those visual supports are matched to the student's needs, not providing them any more general sense. So understanding what is that student's capacity for um, Understanding pictures. Do they need real pictures versus line drawings versus can they utilize just written language and evaluating that based off of their, again, individualized needs and providing instruction, opportunity to practice and reinforcement more frequently for them to be able to acquire that skill of using that tool to help navigate their day. I just I love the way you broke that down. And I think uh, you, you broke it down so nicely around schedules, how that uh, basic layer one support, which is, you know, providing a schedule so the students know what the expectations are into a more targeted support for level three. And the other thing that I, I really liked is, uh, and as you brought in before, uh, it, when we talked, uh, is the idea of teaching and uh, breaking down what needs to be done uh, because a lot of students who require level three supports, it's uh, they did not acquire skills uh, early on uh, that many of their uh, 
their peers did, did acquire early on. And so those skills do have to be broken down into some very, very small components. And when we think about that, you know, particularly uh, in the academic areas, as you mentioned in reading or um, um, communication, uh, that their, their um, approach to that, you know, depending on the disability. And when we think of autism in particular, uh, the core deficits of autism have to be um, considered in terms of breaking things down and how things are broken down in reading, in communication, in, in many areas. Uh, but that applies not only to students with autism, but also other students as well, who may have some uh, cultural differences or some uh, language language differences uh, that they, they might not understand things in the same way and need things to be uh, broken down a little more specifically. And I think that's really hard for uh, particularly inexperienced teachers, uh, you know, who come in with a, an idea that this is what I'm going to teach and this is, this is how I'm going to teach it based on the curricula that's provided for them. And um, as we have talked about, even you know the special education curricula that are targeted for those students who have some um, more uh, intensive learning needs, uh, do not always get how to break it down. A very specific um, idea, especially in terms of academic skills. Um, but I think uh, the other thing that we have to think about is behavioral involvement and teachers often get the idea that if kids are doing something, you know, that they don't want them to do. And, and we talked a little bit offline about if a kid has been screaming for 16 years, uh, that at a level three support, kind of trying to break that down. So I don't know whether you want to use that specific example or if you want to think of some others, but let's think about behavioral interventions and what might need to be broken down and how we assume, you know, uh, it's easy to assume when, you know, something, someone's doing something to really irritate you, uh, that it's a um, um, performance deficit. In other words, that the child can do it but just doesn't. But let's um, let's think about um, how we determine performance deficit versus skill acquisition deficits, and then back to the multi-layered, how we break down those uh, skill deficits. And I hope that's uh, not too much of a, a strength. <laughs> so I think that's a great place to have a conversation is this idea of performance deficit versus skill deficit. Because certainly we do see students who perhaps can engage in a particular skill. They can use a desired behavior in very specific contexts, maybe even with very specific people. And then we don't see them utilizing that skill in other um, contexts. And we want to ensure that it's not a question of learning, right? That's the difference for me between a performance deficit and a skill deficit. And understanding the, the stages of learning, right? That acquisition, fluency, maintenance, generalization, and understanding that the student may have acquired the skill and they can perform that a skill in a very narrow context with maybe some good fluency too. But maybe what they're really struggling with is to take that skill and identify other situations where it would be appropriate to apply that skill. Um, so that generalization piece, maybe they are struggling with the component of maintaining that skill once intervention and um, specific reinforcement strategies have been withdrawn. And so they're not contacting reinforcement for utilizing that skill in different contexts or um, maintaining that skill over time. 
And so that's where really I always try to bring myself back to when I'm looking at a student of, okay, do they have the skill of requesting attention from an adult when needed? Yes, when these specific interventions are in place. Great. Can they do that the vast majority of time, right? Like we're all human beings. I know I certainly don't always request attention appropriately (laughs) um, in all contexts, right? So vast majority of time, are they doing that pretty seamlessly? So they've got some, yes, okay, they've got some good fluency in doing that skill. Do we ever see them use that skill in another setting with other people? Maybe in a different um, context. So, you know, yes, I'm great at doing that in a structured learning environment where I'm sitting at my desk and I'm doing my work versus when I'm out on the playground or in the gym for PE or in the cafeteria, (laughs) right? Um, Then no, if I don't see that, then maybe it's a question of generalization and I need to go back and reevaluate my teaching methods and look at how I can support that student in being able to use that skill in other settings, in other places, with other people. And then maybe they do, maybe they're doing that for a bit of time and then we see the behavior fall off. Um, You know, they stop using it or they're not using it as consistently or we're seeing some, you know, pretty significant inconsistencies in their ability to use that skill that they've learned how to do of asking for somebody to talk to them or getting help, getting attention from other people in the environment in a way that is supportive of the environment and, you know, going to um, kind of be that pro, that pro-social sort of behavior. Then I, I, maybe I need to look at what is the student getting reinforced when they're doing that at all? Um, have I, have I, as a teacher considered how I moved from maybe providing reinforcement using a token economy to making sure that student is accessing types of reinforcement that are naturally occurring in the environment for using that behavior, using that skill. Um, so maybe it's a question of maintenance and that they're just not contacting any reinforcement for doing it now that I've kind of taken out that token economy, Um, And so what do we know as human beings, right? If we're not getting reinforced for doing something, we're not going to keep on doing it. If I don't get my paycheck every week, uh, probably not going to keep on coming to work. So we do need to make sure that we are um, not talking about a question of learning when we're trying to determine if it's a performance deficit or a skill deficit so that we can go and reevaluate does more learning need to happen? Does do, do teaching practices need to change? Or if it's a performance deficit, then that's that question of um, diving a little bit deeper into why isn't the student using the behavior? Maybe it's not meaningful to them. Maybe I can provide all the reinforcement in the world, but they don't care about it because that particular thing, ha- it's not producing any any kind of outcome that they care about, right? Uh, it's not connecting with their values. It's not connecting what's with what's important to them. Um, and so we need to kind of talk about whether that skill is <laughs> a useful one we've taught or is there a different skill that we could teach that maybe is going to be more meaningful to that student and allow them to be successful, but also connect to what's important to them. 
I feel like we think we think together in many ways, and I really appreciate that. Uh, the whole issue of generalization is just a huge one uh, because it's easy um, for children uh, who are more typically developing or who don't have some of the same uh, learning challenges. Uh, typically, the things that they learn become reinforcing to them. Uh, you know, like um, you know, just just various uh, communication, communicating appropriately with adults or with with your peers. Uh, it just becomes reinforcing and it's great and and they generalize meaning that they can use it in all circumstances and you know when we think about skills for ourselves uh things that have to be generalized or even things like driving and of course that's reinforcing because driving gets us from one place to another um but for um students with with disabilities or other kinds of learning challenges we do have to think about how they're going to be using that particular skill as adults uh, as you know, um, in, beyond preschool, beyond first and second grade, how is this skill going to continue to be reinforcing? And we do have to continue to provide that reinforcement in maybe um, more artificial ways uh, for students with disabilities. So um, I, I do think of often uh, Peter Gerhardt uh, said, you're from preschool on, you're teaching to an adult and considering what the number of years, the few number of years that you have for that child's instruction. And, you know, from that same viewpoint, and you, you brought it up as well, that there needs to be motivation to learn what you're learning. And that presents a whole nother um, category of difficulties for, for uh, teachers, particularly of students that have some specific disabilities in that you do need to make instruction meaningful in that it has to matter uh, to to the child and um, so that and that that can be a real challenge for teachers as well in terms of thinking about how to make some of the foundational skills really matter so that the student can then uh, proceed to learn how to read or uh, various things. So there has to be a different approach to um, curricula and uh, to the standards. Um, would you talk just a little bit more about that? Because I love the things that you said about um, uh, particularly meaningful instruction and generalization and individualization. I think that's, you know, making learning meaningful to the student, right? Um, thinking about reading instruction, why, you know, you and I are avid readers. <laughs> As behavior analysts, you kind of go there. Um, but, right, what, what, why do we care about reading? What, what do we get from reading? Why has that positively impacted our lives? And so we want to make sure we're making connections for our kids and the skills that they're learning about how that's going to open other things to them, right? So if I have a student that's very passionate about dinosaurs and I'm trying to teach that student to, to read, how can I do that in the context of that passion area of dinosaurs to create value of how learning to read is going to open up all these other dinosaurs to you. It's going to open up all this additional information about dinosaurs, maybe the context in which dinosaurs lived and died, right? So I'm opening up not just reading, but science and maybe some math and if you get into astronomy, <laughs> um, right? So it can lead down all these different paths, but it's first starting with what's meaningful and valuable to that individual student. 
Um, and that can be, and that doesn't have to be done in the context of a special education classroom. I've worked with lots of teachers who have done that in the context of general education classrooms, in the context of a PE classroom where they're bringing in, um, you know, I, superheroes or uh, My Little Ponies or, you know, other, other preferred things to make the connection to physical fitness and health. And, you know, My Little Ponies, they run, they eat apples, they, you know, I, PE teachers get are just amazing and coming up with ways to make these connections. Um, but it's drawing in that connection to what's valuable and meaningful to the student and then making those connections, continuing those connections to help them grow and access more and more and more things um, that are exciting and um enjoyable for that student and especially for students who have more significant support needs opening up those avenues of more leisure activities opening up avenues of um you know more uh topic areas and areas of interest especially for our students who maybe have an autism spectrum disorder and can have very narrow restricted areas of interest how do we help them make connections um so they can explore other things they might find interesting that they may not have known about previously. Uh, and maybe they don't care about them in the end, but we've provided the opportunity for them to make more connections and possibly explore more areas to, to give them more things to interact with, to give them more things to be interested in, that they don't have to stick with that one thing for their whole life. Uh, that is really a wonderful example. And I I just love the way you talked about that. It, it's not just for those students who are in special education, but also uh, students who, who uh, struggle in other ways. Um, and a, a great, great examples. It really is, I mean, that, that goes to a whole bunch of uh, other skills that teachers uh, need to develop. Uh, but but a lot of it has to do with really paying attention to your students, regardless of, you know, what level of support they may need. Uh, and to uh, just, you know, take that time to watch, to listen, uh, and to notice what really does, um, you know, make a difference to them behaviorally. What is it that tends to set them off? And then thinking about uh, why is that? And, you know, how are, are there ways that they need to learn certain skills? in order to be able to tolerate? Are there uh, ways that they can learn better skills to communicate uh, their wants and needs? And of course, that goes into a whole lot of uh, detail about you know, what we do as, as special educators, uh, but also, as you say, what it turns out that a lot of people in the school are really good at, like uh, PE teachers that you know, can you know, tie physical activity to almost everything. Uh, and it's really pretty amazing. Um, so um, I just, uh, just to sort of um, get us to a, a place where we can tie this up, what else do you feel like we need to learn about uh, the multi-layer systems of support? And, and we are talking primarily about positive behavior supports here. Uh, what have we not talked about that you really feel passionate about? I think we've talked about it throughout, but the re-emphasis of data and using our data to guide our practice um, and knowing that it doesn't have to be, you know, really intense, crazy, you know, behavior analyst data. It can be very simple data, but making sure that we understand why we're taking the data, what data we're taking, and how that data is going to inform our next steps about 
regarding what where we're going to go with a student. Um, you know, is our inter what interventions are needed? We have to start with uh, a baseline. Where is that student at? I have to know what you can do to know where I'm going to go. And then how do I monitor that as I'm teaching, you're acquiring those skills, uh, right? Not just using a summative assessment measure of here, I started here, let's measure at the end, but how do I use those formative assessments or ongoing progress monitoring to ensure that you are making progress consistently? I'm not wasting your time or my time, um, you know, with instruction that's not effective in helping you to acquire that skill that you're trying, that I'm trying to teach you. And then how do we determine based off of the data that we have available, what the next step is for that student? Maybe it's a move into a less restrictive environment. Maybe it's a change in how I'm providing instruction. Maybe it's, hey, things are going great. Let's keep on doing this. So really that, that idea of using our data that we're collecting, having a solid understanding of what we're collecting data on, why we're taking that data, and how that data is going to help us as teachers determine what our next step is for that student and helping them acquire the skills that they need to be able to um, make meaningful progress in their education. I'm so glad that you you mentioned data. And, um, you know, as you and I are a little bit of data geeks and enjoy doing that kind of stuff. And, and I think when um, a lot of uh, people begin to understand uh, the, the power of having that information and uh, the way that it enhances our ability to decide what's next. And it enhances our ability to communicate with families, especially, but also, uh, you know, with uh, people, other people in the school and, and to be able to say, this made a difference in this way for this child. And here's how you might be able to do it with, with another child, or here's how you can continue it on with this student so that they can continue to make the progress. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, crazy, as you say, it doesn't have to be crazy uh, behavior analyst data, but it is, it is very powerful and uh, something that teachers hesitate to, to take the time with because it does take a little time, no matter how easy you make it. Um, I would encourage um, uh, our listeners to, I, I believe there's still a data collection um, lesson um, on the autism portal uh, where you may have accessed uh, this um, um, podcast, uh, but there are simple ways of doing data collection. And I think, um, you know, people say, well, what's the best kind of data? And, you know, it's a cliche, but the best kind of data is the data that you use. Uh, that's the best kind of data. And, you know, we both have known teachers who have collected, you know, big old binders full of data um, that ha that hasn't been used for anything. And so it really is, it's uh, the data, the point of it is to use it for decision-making and to use it to benefit um, a, a student and, and their life. And um, I, I know, you know, you and I have talked about the, the antecedent behavior consequence data that is often required for uh, um, functional behavior assessment. And of course, you know, there's, <laughs> we could, we could talk about the literature around that for a long time, but uh, for teachers who are still required to get that kind of information, uh, to understand that the point of it is to begin to understand what is happening. Uh, 
with a student and to, to get it in as short a time as possible so you can begin to implement uh, the teaching strategies that you need. Um, so um, I'm, I'm glad that you, you mentioned the data and um, I mean, we could talk about that one forever. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? I think just another aspect of MLSS and specifically as it relates to supporting students who have behavioral support needs of, of that um, inclusivity with the family, right? Nobody knows that child better than the family. Um, and I think sometimes we forget about um, asking families what works well for them at home and what's challenging for them at home. Maybe what works well for them in the community and what's challenging for them in the community. If we are working with students who also have outside service providers, bringing those people into the fold so that we can better understand, again, from that perspective of MLSS, of a more holistic view of our students and integrated um, support model for our students, uh, really bringing those people into the fold and having open and honest conversations so that we can identify supports and strategies that maybe um, we wouldn't have thought of as educators that you know, the family or community-based support services may have found to be very successful with that student and that we, you know, might not be a direct fit, fit to the context of school, but that we could certainly modify and integrate um, components of into the, the school environment for that student. That is, is such a good point. And, and I know, again, the many things that we have talked about in the past is um, that it's, it's easy to, uh, when we're frustrated with our inability to know what's going on with a student or our inability to uh, uh, um, help them learn the behaviors we want them to learn, it's, it's sometimes easy to, to say, well, you know, if the family would just do X, Y, and Z. And of course, that's not their responsibility. The family is the family and they're doing the best that they can. And our responsibility at school is to, you know, uh, figure out uh, to the best that we can, uh, our best ability is how they can behave uh, appropriately and learn the things that they need to learn at school, because home and school are two entirely different behaviors places and we all behave differently at home and at school. Uh, but I think the other opportunity that we have for some families is to be able to uh, to understand their frustration and to then to say, you know, here's the way that I'm approaching it at school because I think it's really important for your family. Uh, at like, um, you know, my favorite example is toilet training, is the family has, you know, approached it in certain ways, and it's been totally unsuccessful, and they've just given up. And so at school, and it's not on the standards, uh, but it is an individual need for a, a, a person. Um, so how can we approach it? Can we figure out how to approach that particular skill? And then can we help that family, which is going to uh, hopefully enhance our ability uh, to work with that family? Absolutely. So I think just the other thing that you mentioned that I, I really appreciated was the whole issue of wasting time, uh, both your time and mine. And uh, I think one of the most, um, I think, teaching is really, really hard. And I think uh, for teachers, one of the things that is um, not, I mean, that, that's hard and that, you know, um, maybe doesn't help teachers stay in the field is that when teaching is not reinforcing, when it's not fun, 
And, you know, for, for you and I, and for a lot of the teachers that we work with, it's, it's fun and it's detective work. And uh, it's really a, a pleasure to begin to figure out how to uh, approach particularly some of those um, students that need more individualized support. And I think that the multi-levels of support um, um, is, is a good way of, of helping teachers understand that you can do this and helping them to uh, look at the ways that, that uh, they can access the supports that actually do exist, regardless of whether the child has a special education uh, eligibility or not. Uh, but also, you know, one other thing that is, is can be frustrating as a teacher is the feeling that you are wasting your time, that you've been working on this same IEP objective for uh, two years now and nothing has changed. And so what we know, again, going back to our data is that if nothing has changed, then whatever you're doing is not working. So let's figure out a way that it, that is working. So I just appreciate, uh, you know, it, it's a way to support the multi-level systems of support. It sounds kind of complicated. And if you look at the website, um, it's going to look a little more complicated than we've made it. Uh, but it really is listening to students, watching students, and, you know, sort of breaking down what it is that they need and at what level they need it. And, you know, there are some kids that are going to need very little and there are some kids that are going to need a whole lot. Um, so that's sort of my takeaway from multi-level systems and support. And Heather, do you have anything else that you'd like to add as teachers are thinking about how to do this? And it's, it's not, uh, you know, we may make it sound a little easier than it is or maybe more complicated than it is. And I encourage you to look at the materials from the New Mexico Public Education Department uh, and um, see if, uh, and Heather, do you have any other um, strategies or supports for teachers? I, I think I love what you said. And I always say learning should be fun and it should be fun, right? It may not be super fun sometimes um, in the moment with a student, but we should as teachers find, uh, be able to find pleasure and joy in watching our students grow and learn and um, have those aha moments. Um, and certainly that idea of, right, if something's not working, then don't keep doing it. Don't bang, don't, don't, that's not fun, <laughs> um, right? So, you know, that's where that database decision-making comes in so heavily of if it's not, if you're not seeing a change in behavior, then pull your team together, talk to your fellow teachers, get your health and wellness team together, get your IEP team together and reimagine what, how that student can learn that skill. Don't, don't feel like you have to keep banging your head against the wall. Use your data to make that decision so that you can get those, those aha moments with your students. And we all know as teachers, there's nothing like those moments with your students. Those are the things that uh, keep you coming back every day. And, and, you know, certainly the things that um, even, you know, 20 years into my teaching career, I, I have so many students over the years that those little aha moments for them over the years um, are, you know, things that I fall back on on hard days of, well, like this was a, this was a terrible day, but remember that one time. So um, use your data and, and remember that learning should be fun. Learning should be fun for you as the instructor and learning should be fun for your students 
as well. Uh, so true. And uh, I often say I've learned a whole lot more from my the students that I've had, I think, than they have learned from me. Um, and so I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate uh, your passion for what you do and for how skillful you are at what you do. And uh, the, your, also your, your passion for teachers as well as for students. So thank you so much for joining us, Heather. And um, I appreciate uh, all, your, all of your insight podcasts. So thank you for joining us today. And uh, we hope that you enjoyed it and uh, learned something and had some fun. Mm-hmm.